Good morning, everybody. It is uh, great to be back. I tell you, that, that term bumper still just gets me fired up. Like, I'm, I'm really excited about Daniel right now. So uh, it's going to be great. Um, good to be back. It was so sad to miss all of you guys last week. Uh, thankful to um, our worship team, our AV crew, and the crew in at Sugar Grove to help make it possible to uh, get Tim's sermon in here. So cool you guys got to hear from Pastor Tim last Sunday uh, with Daniel chapter 4, but good to be back uh, with you guys today. Um, two two uh, quick things, one quicker than the other before we get into Daniel. Um, Josh had mentioned those uh, uh, classes that we have coming up. Uh, since last week we were supposed to do the baptism class, um, we will have that available after the service today. So if anybody is interested, I know some of you guys are uh, wanting to be part of that. So uh, we'll take off after that. Once the service is done, we'll head downstairs where we can kind of get away from some of the crazy and, and talk some baptism. It'll be great. Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two, I'm going to give it just a couple more minutes too because it's an exciting announcement that I want to put on your radar and introduce to you uh, this morning. Well, actually, if you were here a year ago, I'm reintroducing it to you um, because last January we started talking about this idea called build the future um, and then we pretty much didn't talk about it much after last January so you're maybe you don't even remember that uh, maybe you do and you're like yeah what was that all about well a year ago it was kind of a dream you know what what could be and today I want to introduce this reintroduce this idea to you uh, with some more nuts and bolts and plans behind it. Now, before we jump to any conclusions, we're not building any new buildings or anything like that. That's not uh, what we're talking about. But there comes seasons in the life of a church where stewarding what God has given us uh, will require us to, to make some larger ticket item investments into uh, the spaces that we have. And, and we believe that we're at one of those times right now where uh, we have some things that we need to address uh, with the building. Uh, in the past couple years, it was uh, these windows here in the sanctuary that we replaced with new ones. Um, and we have some plans for some things moving forward as well to help make sure that this is a space uh, that will continue for generations after all of us are done with it. Uh, this room, just don't know if all of you know this, this part of the building uh, was built in 1874, which the last time I checked, I know for some of our more seasoned saints in the room, that predates you too. So that this building has been around, ministry has been happening here in this place longer than any of us have been alive. And it's our vision and our prayer and our goal that long after all of us have gone back to be with the Lord, that ministry would still be happening uh, in this place and God would still be doing some great things. So uh, to do that, we have uh, looked at some of the needs uh, of this space here in the sanctuary and identified some, some opportunities where we both need to and would like to uh, provide some updates so that we can continue to use this place for the years and, and the life ahead of us as a church. So to do so, we have actually put together a phased project, meaning that there, we're going to do things in multiple stages uh, to accomplish this. The, the first thing that we saw is one of the most important things. I mentioned baptism class, and uh, currently, this is our lovely baptismal over here. A few of you have had the privilege of finding your way into that baptismal, um, but it's, it's in a place right now where it, it's not in great health. Um, it's leaking pretty badly. We learned that this summer, uh, so it needs some attention given to it anyways, and dare we say it's 
Well, I'm just going to say it's kind of dangerous to get into. Uh, to get to it, if you've never had to, you have to go down the basement into an old closet, pull down a rickety attic access ladder, climb that attic access ladder, walk through the bell tower, and then descend down into the baptismal. And then when you're done with all of that, you have to do it in reverse while you're soaking wet. And that's the especially dangerous part. Um, so we have uh, looked at it, and since it's in a place where it needs repairs anyways, we felt that this is a great time to just take that baptismal out and we have some other arrangements to do baptisms because that's something we want to continue doing uh, at our church. And so as we do that, we would uh, just kind of remodel and finish the stage off uh, while we're already digging into those projects and in the process of touching carpet. Uh, I know this has been a heartbeat for many of you guys. Our plan would be to replace all of the carpet in the sanctuary and out into the hallway as well. Um, that would be phase one. We've got other phases that include um, addressing structural problems with this front wall and the window to lights and to tech and, and all kinds of things in this space. And so we've broken it down because uh, we believe that to accomplish all of this, it's going to cost us in the ballpark of $30,000 to make it all happen, which is a lot of money, especially a lot of money for a church like ours and our size. And so we know it's a, a big investment, uh, but we believe it to be a necessary investment with just where we're at in the life of our church and where we are heading. So I am asking you today, I'm presenting this to you today to, uh, to ask you to join us in investing, uh, not just in the, the ongoing ministry of our church, but making a, a special investment into the future of this church and the future of what, what this space will be as we move forward. Um, seeing that it's a large investment, uh, we are very thankful to not be tackling this on our own. Um, our other campuses, our brothers and sisters at the other campuses of Village Bible Church have rallied around this and they have agreed to and committed to join us in it. Uh, so any designated giving towards Build the Future will be matched dollar for dollar up to $10,000. So if we raise $10,000, uh, we will have $20,000 from the, our from the gifts and generosity of our brothers and sisters at our other campuses to address some of these needs. Uh, we'll also be relying on, on varying levels of volunteer help. We recognize we're trying to keep our costs uh, as low as we possibly can and be good stewards and still uh, accomplish all the things that we would like to do. So if you have your bulletins uh, with you this morning, I'm going to ask you just grab that real quick and don't open it, but flip it over to the back, the side that maybe none of you ever pay any attention to. Maybe you check it on a weekly basis, but on the back of the bulletin, you will find some graphics there uh, that are going to kind of outline for us and keep you up to date as to where we're at. So the beauty of doing this in a phased process means that when we have raised enough funds uh, to accomplish the the next phase of the project, we can pull the trigger and begin working on that phase. So instead of sitting and, and raising a whole lump sum up front as we raise enough to get going, we can get going on a project. So on the back of, of that, on the right side of your bulletin, you'll see a little graphic that's got a sliding bar. And on that sliding bar, you'll see um, a shaded color that shows the, the giving that's happened at our own campus, as well as the match uh, that's come in from our other campuses. And it'll show you kind of where we're at in relationship to the phases that we're going. So the good news is, um, 
while I'm announcing this to you the first time, there has been some initial investments into this by some of our own people uh, that has put us to the place where we are about 75% of the way towards raising the funds to, to start on that first phase, uh, which would be, again, baptismal stage and all new carpeting, uh, which means for us at Indian Creek that we need to raise about $1,500 more, and once we, are able, once we do that, we'll be able to start moving on that project. Um, so I'm asking you uh, today to uh, be prayerful and consider what your engagement in this would look like. Uh, for those of you that are already investing um, and, and uh, giving generously to the church, um, we're, we're asking that anything that's given towards Build the Future be above and beyond our regular offerings. And that's just because we, we still have an operating budget, we still have ministry expenses that we don't want to say, hey, we're shutting down the ministry of the church uh, to accomplish these things. But uh, as we are able to go to invest more into this. So if you, if you uh, have some ability to, to give towards this, we'd love to invite you to do it. And I think it's going to be exciting to see stuff happen as we go as well. And just uh, it'll be a great encouragement to, to set this space up for something that needs to be addressed and something that's going to be beneficial and, and useful for years to come. Uh, as our church continues to grow, continues to thrive, and uh, do gospel work here in Shabana. So I present that to you today. We'll continue to talk about this stuff um, in the days to come. If you are interested in giving to those things, there's a couple ways you can do it. Um, if you have or give in person, those envelopes that are in the back, you can grab one of those. And on the, back, on the front of that envelope, uh, there are little spaces that indicate, you know, general giving, benevolence, or build the future. So if you're making a special gift towards build the future, mark it in that. If you give online, you can do the same thing. Uh, there's a, a drop down when you give online that will designate it for build the future so that all of it will go towards that project and, and what's going on. And that way you will see those updates reported to you as we move throughout. If you have questions about this at all, we'd love to talk with you about that. Uh, I know that there's, there probably are questions that are going on uh, through your mind as we speak. Um, don't let those things foster or fester. You know, bring them, talk to me about it, talk to our elders. Um, they're in the loop and know what's going on and kind of what our, our strategy is with some of these things. But uh, just excited to see what God has in store. So uh, before we turn our attention to Daniel, I want to take our attention back to the Lord and just uh, kind of cover this in prayer um, and cover our time this morning as well. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and... And I know that for me, I am always humbled by the reminder that you have been doing a great work in this place longer than I have been on this earth, longer than any of us have been on this earth. And uh, Lord, that is a reminder that your gospel and kingdom work transcends us. Uh, you are in the business of making disciples and building your kingdom uh, here in Shabbatah and our surrounding communities um, and, and have been for, for decades, over a century, Lord. And, and we pray, we pray that we would uh, be faithful to the calling that you've placed on us and that, Lord, you would be uh, faithful to continue that work long after each of us are uh, reunited with you in glory, that uh, the generations to come would see and know uh, who you are and, and have a relationship with you. So, Lord, as we uh, look at the building that you have entrusted to us, uh, there are many things in an old building that need our attention, need our stewardship, and uh, we're in a season right now where some of these are going to take on higher ticket items. And uh, so, Lord, I just pray your blessing on, on the plans ahead. And if, if any of them are just selfish or not in your will, Lord, I pray that you would continue to lead and, and uh, make that evident to us. 
Uh, but Lord, I pray this would be a rallying call for our church to look at what we have and, and want to take care of it uh, so that this physical building uh, will be available for generations to come after us as well. And it would be useful to uh, the work and the ministry that you've called us to today um, and in the months and years ahead as well. We do these things and we, we serve and, and we engage in ministry, not for pats on our own back, Lord, but uh, Lord, to bring you honor and glory in our own lives, in the life of this body, and the life of our community as well. And so uh, we just pray a blessing on the plans that are before us, and uh, we pray now as well as we turn our attention to Daniel uh, chapter 5, that you would, you would draw powerful truths out of your word, and you would uh, communicate in a, in a way through your spirit as I speak that it wouldn't be my own thoughts, my own words, uh, but Lord, it would be a, a message of truth from you to our hearts that we might see and understand and walk closely with you uh, in our lives. And we pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, I would encourage you, I invite you to open them with me to Daniel chapter 5. Um, I was joking with some, someone this morning asked, well, these uh, sermons that we've been working through. Have you written sermons for the weeks that you were gone? I'm like, yes, I, I have. I, contrary to maybe popular opinion, most of the time I don't write my sermons on uh, Sunday mornings, um, but maybe, I apologize if that's the perception that comes across, but this morning we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 5, and last Sunday, uh, Pastor Tim, uh, as we worked through chapter 4, kind of closed the book on King Nebuchadnezzar if you will. Uh, we've watched this kind of story arc with this uh, powerful and influential king uh, come and rise and fall again as we have studied this book. And this morning we open up to a name of a new king, King Belshazzar. And we're going to give our attention to a very special segment of scripture, one in which, um, like it or not, our culture has built things off of this chapter. We have coined phrases like the writing's on the wall and uh, your days are numbered. Uh, these kind of phrases come right here from Daniel chapter 5. And so uh, we're going to hopefully learn some very wonderful things as we turn our attention here. But I would invite you, we're going to start uh, reading in verse 1, and we're going to read just a couple segments of this chapter, and then as we work through the message today, we'll go back and fill in some of those gaps. But Daniel chapter 5, verse 1 begins, King Belshazzar made a great feast for, the thousand, for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Well, then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And then the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly, bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Jump to verse 24. And then from his presence, Daniel speaking, the hand was sent, and and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the manner. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then Belshazzar gave the command. Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Quite a story. And... You can imagine the fear that would be in Belshazzar's life as something like this happens. Imagine having a great party and suddenly the writing is on the wall and you don't know exactly what that writing means, but you've watched a hand inscribe something on the wall. That would probably cause the most uh, bold of us to shake in our boots just a little bit. But before we dive into this, I think it's helpful for us to take just a brief moment and define some times and terms to help paint some context for us. Because I know that my tendency when I read stories like this is to kind of take the words and read them word after word and we squish timelines together in a more succinct way than they're really meant to be understood. For instance, between the end of Daniel chapter 4... And the beginning of Daniel chapter 5, it is likely that some 20 to 30 years have passed. And a lot has happened in those 20 to 30 years. Tons of things have happened. For instance, King Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king of Babylon. And this time period is full of all kinds of drama and the rising and falling of these kings of Babylon. It's, it's a history full of assassinations, uh, political marriages, and, and all sorts of things that bring us from the point of Nebuchadnezzar's reign here to where we are introduced to King Belshazzar. One of the important things, just maybe not so critically important, but interesting tidbit of information is that uh, Belshazzar, as you can see on the screen, um, I don't know how well you can read it, uh, but Belshazzar, you see his name in the bottom corner over here. Uh, We believe that Belshazzar was the son of a a Babylonian king named Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was one of those such political marriages uh, that married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters to strengthen his claim to the throne. And he received the throne because the the king before him was assassinated so that he could have the kingdom uh, and and reign in place. And so Belshazzar, um, as we'll see in this chapter, is referred to as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, or more accurately, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as his father, probably meaning his predecessor or the one that's gone before him or an ancestor uh, as an example here. But uh, Belshazzar being one of Nebuchadnezzar's grandchildren, and more likely a a title, an accurate title of what his role would have been here is probably co-regent in the kingdom of Babylon. We know from history that Nabonidus, uh, the true king of Babylon at this point, 
is still alive, probably out uh, with the armies of Babylon fighting and getting his tail handed to him by the Medes and the Persians. Um, and we're, we're told that he is deported and put into exile and stuff after ba uh, Babylon falls. Uh, so the two of them are kind of reigning in tandem with each other a little bit at this point in time. So lots has happened. And it's a reminder for us that as we approach this point in the book of Daniel, uh, we tend to view the things that we have been studying over the past few weeks like they're happening rather quickly, kind of one on top of the other. Uh, but it's a reminder for us, just looking from a date's timeline, uh, that all of this has transpired over a, a lifetime. We were introduced to Daniel in Daniel chapter 1 as a youth, uh, a young man. At this point, it's more than likely he was, he was somewhere in maybe around his 80s. So a lifetime has transpired over the course of events that we have studied, uh, which is just a, maybe your, your point of extra credit or the cherry on top for today is, here's your reminder that God oftentimes works in long periods of time. In our microwave and two-day shipping kind of world that we live in, we, we are ready for God to act now. And when days go by, we're like, okay, Lord, let's do something. But this is a reminder for us that, that God is, well, God's in the crockpot business. So uh, he, he is in the business of doing things on his timetable and over a broader period of time than we may be useful, used to or prefer. So that was perhaps more history than some of you bargained for this morning. You're like, okay, get on with it. I just want to know what to do with Daniel chapter 5. Uh, for those of you who are history geeks, you're like, why didn't Daniel talk about more of those assassinations and the drama? That's, that's interesting stuff. But either way, uh, wherever you fall on that, uh, we come to a place here where God is again working. Uh, God is doing something uh, bigger than Daniel. Uh, bigger than, than just what's happening on the page. And that's a reminder for us today. And I'll, I, this is so important for us to grasp, remember, and, and take to heart that that's the God that we serve. We, we serve a God who's acting throughout the course of human history in, in grand ways, in big ways over a period of time. God is bigger than just the, the simple circumstances of our lives. And I recognize that the circumstances of life are oftentimes complex. We feel the, the real weight of things that are going on. But God's bigger than those circumstances. His plans and his purposes are bigger than just what's happening here and now. That's part of why this whole thing we're saying, we want this building to, to be prepared for centuries to come, for generations to come, because God's bigger than Village Bible Church Indian Creek in 2024. We play a part. We're, we are at a small moment in what God is doing on a bigger scale. And so throughout this uh, story of Daniel, over the past five chapters, we have been seeing God over and over and over again do what God means to do. He is raising up kingdoms. He is at work in the midst of those kingdoms, in pagan kingdoms, to carry out and accomplish His plans and His purposes. And we have referred to this as God's sovereignty. We've called our series, Daniel, um, Kingdoms, Chaos, and the Sovereignty of God. Another term that we might use for this is God's providence. 
God's providence. And just to bring some definition for you, God's providence refers to God's activity in the world, guiding and directing events to accomplish his purposes according to his divine plan. And I know in Christian circles today, when we begin to talk about God's providence and we talk about God's sovereignty, it raises some discomfort from time to time. Because we start to ask, to what extent does God execute his providence? To what extent is God sovereign over the events that transpire throughout human history? And we begin to, to wrestle with some of this. And, and maybe it's our own pride at times. Uh, maybe it's our own lack of understanding at times. Uh, but this is sometimes a hot topic when it comes to church, when we speak of God's providence. But we cannot deny that we have seen it jump off the pages, riddled through the history of Daniel so far. Daniel chapter 1, we saw God's providence at the very outset of this whole thing when it says that God gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. We saw that God gave the four youths learning and skill and all wisdom and literature. In Daniel chapter 2, we're told that God revealed the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. We're told in Daniel chapter 2 that this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was God showing him the things that were to come after him. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2 that all the power and dominion and authority that belonged to Nebuchadnezzar and the great empire of Babylon, all of it had been given by God. Daniel chapter 3, God gets in the fiery furnace, rescues the boys. Daniel chapter 4, God gave Nebuchadnezzar yet another dream. And he humbles Nebuchadnezzar uh, to the point that we talked about last week where he lives in the wilderness. The dew of heaven is on his shoulders and he eats grass like an ox. But then at the end, God yet again restores him so that Nebuchadnezzar would learn that the Most High rules over the kingdom of man. And not only that, but he gives it to whom he will. That's been the story the story has not been simply a few Jewish guys living faithfully in Babylon. God works through that. Don't get me wrong. But the story has been God raises up kingdoms and brings them to ruin. God puts on the throne of those kingdoms whom he will, and he takes down whom he will. The story of, Dan of Daniel has been a story of God's providence. A story of God's sovereignty at play in the human affairs of the world. That's been it. And that's still it today. Daniel chapter 5. Again, as we look at this, we see God intervening in his work. Deists would be those who believe that there is a great God, but this God has separated himself from creation. He's taken a step back. He doesn't intervene. He's not concerned with how things are working. In other words, he, he started the top and he just lets it spin and he sits back and watches. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, we are told, is a God who not only spoke creation into existence, but he is a God who from the very beginning has been intricately involved with his creation. 
He has stepped into it. From the, from the garden itself, God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. Uh, from that very beginning, all throughout, God has had a people for himself. He has intervened. He has interjected himself to bring about the course of human history to accomplish his plans and his purposes. So none of the characters that we have been introduced to so far in Daniel are the authors of the story. This hasn't been their story. This isn't Daniel simply writing how he brought about his future and his destiny. They couldn't write their own destinies. God wrote their destinies. This is God's story. Him working in and through his people and even through the pagan kingdoms of the world to bring about what God has planned, what God has purposed for his good will. So this morning, as we look to Daniel chapter 5, I want us to, to embrace this passage through the lens of God's providence. So I want us, as we, as we look through this, I, my goal is that we are going to draw out three key things here in Daniel chapter 5 that we see God do in his providence. The first of which that we'll speak to is that in God's providence, he exposes the folly of man. Here in Daniel chapter 5, we are thrown into a party of all parties. King Belshazzar has brought together a thousand of his lords, and we're told that his wives and concubines are there. This is, this is the happening place of Babylon at that very moment. Stuff is happening. There's wine flowing. Uh, we're told that Belshazzar drinks the wine in front of the thousands, whatever place of prominence that he has. And in the midst of this party, it, it, gets, it gets away from them, perhaps. And Belshazzar calls for these articles uh, to be brought in. These articles that are, it's more than calling for the fine china. When Belshazzar says, bring, bring the articles of gold and silver from the temple in Jerusalem, he's not saying, hey, I just want the nicest things that Babylon has to offer for us to live it up for a little bit. When he calls for those articles, it's a statement. He's making a statement. When they drink from these articles, it's as if uh, Belshazzar and his company are saying, we, this is what we think of that God. Right From the very outset of Daniel, we said, what a significant thing that these articles were taken from Jerusalem and brought to the house of a pagan God. This is the story. Who's God in Babylon? God's been defeated. God's dead. God's out of the picture. He's out of the fight. And every page that we have looked at, every story that we've looked at has been, God is very much in the fight. And he's very much not dead. As a matter of fact, God's on his throne. So here these guys uh, bring these, these articles in. Well, quite a devious request. In Psalm chapter uh, 10, verse 4, tells us that in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. Psalm 10 verse 4 tells us as it goes on that all of his thoughts, all of the, the thoughts of the wicked are there is no God. Well, that makes sense. Now you start to look at Daniel chapter 4 and Nebuchadnezzar's whole gig. What? 
Why would God care so much about the pride of these pagan kings? Because pride denies the very existence of God. So if God's purpose for Nebuchadnezzar was to, for him to learn that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and he, he gives, gives it to whom he will, in order for Nebuchadnezzar to come to that realization and that understanding, he had to be humbled. Because you cannot affirm that the Most High rules the kingdom of man in the pride of your own heart. So God humiliates him. And in his humiliation, what? Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven and he honors and praises the God whose dominion is an everlasting dominion whose kingdom endures from generation to generation. Why does God care so much? Because the pride of the, the heart of man rejects the very notion of God's existence. It rejects the notion of God's activity in his creation. It denies that he is even God. So when these individuals bring in these vessels to the party and they begin making use of them, they they profane the significance and the sacredness of them. These articles that were meant to be used in the worship of the Most High, Most Holy God, now become the vessels for debauchery and drunkenness. They're misused in what they were ever intended to be. But not only that, verse 4 tells us that they drink wine and they praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So not only is the statement, hey, this is what we think of this God, that he, he ain't really much of anything. Not only are we going to just misuse these articles because they're not significant to us at all, we are, as a matter of fact, they use them to praise false gods. False gods that Daniel will say later in verse 23 are these gods that cannot see, cannot hear, and cannot know. Quite the party. This isn't just a fling. There's a statement being made. God's not God. And we will do whatever we want, however we want. And what does verse 5 say? Immediately. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the wall. In that moment not just in the, in the sin and debauchery of the world, but in the moment where God is being completely and utterly disrespected, dishonored, and they are profaning the very holiness and existence of God. In that moment, God says, enough is enough. And he steps in, and he writes these obscure words on the wall, and, and we are told that Nebuchadnezzar, or not Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar has quite the physiological response to this happening. Knees start shaking, his limbs give way, we're told his color changed. I am one familiar with color changing. Um, this, is, this is a response that would have been noticeable to the people. As a matter of fact, one, one pastor commented on it, uh, saying that one of the literal translations here is that the joints of his loins were loosened. I will leave that with you. You can interpret exactly what that means, because I think you're smart enough to pick up on it. Belshazzar is a mess. 
And he doesn't know what it means exactly, but evidently, he knows it ain't good. And you notice the panic that he has as he calls in uh, these, uh, these wise men. And if you have been paying any attention throughout the book of Daniel so far, you almost get the sense, like, I, I read this, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and, and he declared to them. And then what does it say? They come in, the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And in my head, I start thinking to myself, here they come. Like, what are these guys really bringing to offer? Like, it's all show. It's all pomp and circumstance because they have failed over and over and over over again but here's the reality these dudes are the smartest guys in town they're the cream of the crop when it comes to Babylon they went to the most prestigious schools they graduated top of their class Uh, they have the, the highest degrees these are the intellects and the brilliance of Babylon that's it these aren't just a bunch of clowns that come strolling in these are smart intelligent people The problem is that each and every time God speaks, they don't know what it means. And it reminds me, it takes me back, I guess it wouldn't be back at this point, it would be forward uh, to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where he says, For it's written, I will deny the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And what Paul is saying is the wisdom of the world has not come to a place where it can see and recognize God for what it is. It's in Babylon. The wisdom of the world cannot see, cannot understand, cannot know the voice of God. God speaks and they're like, we got nothing for you. And in in comes a servant, Daniel, and God speaks. He reveals it to him. I'm just reminded that in the day and age that we live in, the same spirit is true. The folly of man continues to look exactly to the same places. We look to the intellect. We look to the reasoning. We look to the philosophy of man and what does it produce over and over and over again? Emptiness. It just doesn't provide the answers that we're looking for. Period. And so in this scene, if you will, this episode of Daniel chapter 5, God exposes, by, by his providence, entering into the situation, writing on the wall, God exposes the folly of man, both the error of uh, Belshazzar, he knows. His face turns red. He soils himself. He, he is, he, all the pomp and circumstance, all the fake boldness of this king, now he is, he is his cowardly child brought to nothing because of God. God exposes that error. Man, have we screwed up. He exposes the emptiness of the pursuits of of the intellects of the age. The answers that are uh, necessary for humanity just are not found in those places. God exposes the folly of man. We'll enter verse 10. The queen 
or probably more likely the queen mother. My take on it, and if you disagree with me on this, that's okay. It's, we don't need to argue about it. It's not that important. But uh, it seems as though this is probably Belshazzar's mom, not his wife, because earlier we're already told that his wives and concubines are at the party. Um, so that's, I'm going to say, I'm going to refer to her as Belshazzar's mom. Do what you will with that. That's okay. Uh, here she steps in. And because she's heard of the commotion and all that's going on, because of the words of the king and his lords, she comes into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared rather nicely, well, this is a positive start, O king, live forever! It says, let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. And I mean, you almost imagine Belshazzar at that point saying, easier said than done. Like, easy for you to say, you didn't see what I just saw. Like, this is a big deal. What do you mean? Like, of course my color's going to change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods and in the days of your father light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him and king nebuchadnezzar your father your father the king made him chief of the magicians enchanters chaldeans and astrologers because an excellent spirit knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams explain riddles and solve problems were found in this daniel whom the king named belshazzar so now let daniel be called and he will show the interpretation so she steps in and in essence says, hey, kid, get a hold of yourself. And he had many faculties at that moment in which he needed to get a hold of himself. That would be a reasonable call. Get a grip, son. Before you freak out, there is a man. There is a man. And I believe this is such a profound statement to this chapter because the way she goes and describes said man is significant when Daniel is brought before Belshazzar later uh, in verse 14 Belshazzar even says I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you Guys, the, the words that are used to describe Daniel in this scenario are very messianic words. Are we saying that Daniel is a Messiah? No. But as we read and study the Old Testament, God is continually wetting our palates, preparing us, pushing us, pointing us ahead to Jesus who would come later. And so they use these words, the spirit of the gods and, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding and all these great things. And they are eerily reminiscent of how the prophet Isaiah in chap, Isaiah chapter 11 describes the coming Messiah on whom the spirit of God will dwell and wisdom and knowledge and understanding will be in, in him and, and all of these things. And so we begin to see, okay, perhaps this is one of those places where God is wetting the palate He's saying that the one whom he will send, the one who will enter into the darkness when the wisdom of man has failed and there is no answers, there is one who will come and he is one who will have, will have true wisdom. He is the one on whom the Spirit of God will descend and dwell upon him. And we're seeing types, models of that one to come show up even here. So it would seem appropriate for us to say, hey, could we not say today, there is a man? 
in the confusion and chaos of the world that we live in, can we not declare the same thing? Though them in ignorance, us in seeing and understanding who Christ is, there is a man, there is a man in this kingdom who can give insight, who will give wisdom, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he is the only one. He is it. And he has said that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he has called people to enter into that kingdom, you and I alike. He is our king. And in the chaos and uncertainties of our world, we today can echo those same remarks that the Queen Mother did some 2,500 years ago. There is a man. His name is Jesus. A man on whom the Spirit of God dwells. A man full of wisdom, full of understanding, full of all power. A man of light. The Gospel of John says that, it's, that he, the light has entered into the darkness. He's it. He's the ticket. And we're told that all who call upon his name will know the Father. For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the radiance of the image of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is it. So you want to see and know and understand what God has said, who God is? Jesus is it. It's not seeking the enlightenment. It's not seeking just perspective on things. It is only through Jesus that we come to know the truth. Jesus is that man. So don't share in the same folly of Belshazzar. The one who, who takes the, the good things from God, as Josh uh, even prayed a bit ago, the blessings that God has given and begin to worship those things and deny the very God in whom he holds the very breath of your life. The essence of who you are, your future, everything of you, he holds in his hand. Do not mock and ridicule that God, but honor him. When Daniel comes before Belshazzar, Belshazzar tells him as we continue in the story. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, this is down in verse uh, 16. You should be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Well, then Daniel answers and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself, uh, your rewards for another. I don't need need what you have to offer. That's fine. You, You keep your stuff. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And he goes on then from verses 18 and following, and he speaks of Nebuchadnezzar. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. In other words, what Daniel is saying here is, and we'll read it in a moment, he's saying, listen, maybe in this situation, Belshazzar, history is your best teacher. You remember, you remember Nebuchadnezzar. You remember what happened to him. God gave him this power, this greatness, the glory and the majesty. And because of the greatness, verse 19, that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar could do what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do. But when his heart was lifted up, And his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. 
He was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys and he, fed, he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. But you, Belshazzar, he says, you knew all this. And did not humble yourself. You knew it all. You didn't humble yourself. But you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored oh Belshazzar the fool who did not learn from history oh Belshazzar the one who blasphemed the God who held his very life in his hand and now God is calling him to account the first thing that we saw in God's providence he exposes the folly of man now secondly he executes his judgments the hand appears and writes, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson on the wall. And here's God's judgment, Daniel says, that God's numbered the days of your kingdom and they're over. You have been judged in the balance, weighed in the balances, and you've been found wanting, and your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, Belshazzar lost his life and his kingdom. And if, you, if you're paying attention through this interaction with uh, Daniel and Belshazzar, you'll notice there's a difference than how uh, Daniel dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 4, uh, you'll see if you turn your page back, uh, Daniel, in uh, response to Nebuchadnezzar, gives him the interpretation. Then verse 27 of chapter 4, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar is like, I got bad news. Let this news be for your enemies, not for you. But okay, here's what God says Would you please repent? Change your ways. Well, now Belshazzar shows up, and Daniel's just like, Here it is. Your days are numbered, your kingdom's over, you've been found wanting, and your kingdom is being given to the Medes and the Persians. Straightforward. To the, to the core. It's a different interaction. And I was struck in thinking through this, why would God, why would God show mercy to Nebuchadnezzar and not to Belshazzar? Why would God... With Nebuchadnezzar, give him a whole year after Daniel's warning to him. This is what's going to come, and we're told that it took a whole year before uh, all of it came to be. Why would God allow Nebuchadnezzar to be humbled so that he could be restored and then not act similarly with Belshazzar? What's the deal? Why would God show mercy to one and not the other. Well, it was taken back to Exodus chapter 33, 
If you remember, that's where Moses is pleading with God about uh, showing him to him, and God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Oof. And that's the tough pill to swallow. Because in essence, God is saying, I'm the one who reserves the right to show mercy on whom I will. And if I want to show mercy on someone, I will show mercy on them. If I don't want to, I don't have to. That's tough. The Apostle Paul uses the same vein of thinking in Romans chapter 9. He speaks of Pharaoh and he speaks of uh, the, this, this potter who has a lump of clay. And he says, from this lump of clay, doesn't the potter have the right to make from that same lump some vessels for honorable use? In other words, can he take this clay and he's going to make some vases and pictures that you're going to set out and display in your home and they're going to be beautiful things and used for great purposes. And doesn't that potter not have the right to take from that same lump of clay some of it to make dishonorable uses, those, those vessels that maybe are used to carry human feces and all of that out to, out to the trash? Does the clay have the right to choose? Paul says, it's the, isn't it in the hands of the potter? Is the potter having that authority? And the difficult pill to swallow is that's God's call. So if God, in his wisdom and his providence, wanted Nebuchadnezzar to be humbled and, and to be restored, well, God rules over the kingdom of man and he gives it to whom he will. If God, in his providence and his wisdom, did not have that for Belshazzar, that's God's call. And that's, that's a difficult thing to come to terms with. Because it sounds great when you're talking theoretically on paper. It sounds fine when you're talking about kingdoms that were 2,500 years ago. That vein of thinking becomes a little bit more challenging to stomach when it becomes the, the people that you and I know and love. A hard pill to swallow. But the scriptures say that God is the potter and he reserves the right over the clay to do what? Some for honorable, some for dishonorable. That's one side of this. Then as I was wrestling with it, this is if God revealed, he was like, listen, it's not that, it's not that God didn't show mercy to Belshazzar. God showed mercy to Nebuchadnezzar and he showed mercy to Belshazzar, but his, the manifestation of his mercy looked different. For, for Nebuchadnezzar, God's mercy was that he forewarned him. God's mercy was that he humbled him. God's mercy was that he restored him. With Belshazzar, God's mercy was Nebuchadnezzar's example. I've given you, you knew all this. That's what Daniel says. You knew it. And yet, you rejected this God. And yet, you dishonored this God. God's mercy was that he had given the example to say, Nebuchadnezzar learned it the hard way. I'm sparing you that. You can learn from his example. And he didn't. And he was brought to account for it. 
You and I live in a day and age in which we have been given example after example after example, both here throughout God's word and in the testimony and lives of brothers and sisters who've gone before us and among us. We should not presume upon God's mercy being the same in every circumstance with every person in every place and every time. God may demonstrate his mercy to you differently than he demonstrates his mercy to me. Sometimes God's mercy may be that he spares you from the consequences. Sometimes, as we talked in our small group this week, sometimes God's mercy is that he lets you bear the full weight of it. Because in that moment, you, you hit rock bottom, just like Nebuchadnezzar did, where you lift your eyes to heaven and say, I'm going to honor that God. Because clearly, it's not me. Don't presume on tomorrow. Don't presume on God's mercy to be in any one shape or form. He will deal as he will deal with the circumstances of our lives. But as believers, that doesn't mean that we presume that he's not going to be merciful with us at all. Lamentation tells us that his mercies are new every morning. That his faithfulness is unchanging We have confidence in the mercy of God that we will not go and stand before him one day and he will say, I've changed my mind. The blood of Christ doesn't cover you anymore, though you have staked your belief and your life on it. It means nothing to you. We have confidence in that day God's mercy will be with us for all of eternity because there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know where each and every one of you are at right now with the Lord. And it would be foolish of me to assume. If you have rejected the mercy of God and not embraced it, do so now. Don't presume that God's going to give you a year to figure it out. Don't presume that you will have a lifetime of whatever, that God's going to bring you low and he'll raise you up in due time. You don't know how God is going to deal in your life. So don't reject the mercy that he has revealed to you, but submit to it. Bow the knee to it. Embrace God as a God of mercy and grace and love because it is not on your merit that you will find standing before this just and holy God. One day, listen to me, God wrote many, many Tekel Parson on the wall in Babylon 2,500 some years ago. And 2,500 some years ago, that was a judgment for the, the, the empire of Babylon. But the Bible has made it clear that though Babylon fell that day, God's not done with Babylon. That the spirit of Babylon goes on. Revelation tells us that there is a day coming where God is going to bring a a swift and utter end to Babylon. Not the empire, but the spirit of Babylon representing the entire kingdom of man of which is still alive and well today. And so while there is a judgment for Belshazzar in that kingdom, then and there, each and every one of us stand with that same judgment. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And we will give an account. Each and every one of us. Because is it not same, the same for the kingdom of man? Your days have been numbered and it's coming to an end. That's what Revelation tells us. That's what the rest of Daniel is going to say. This is not going to go on forever. 
You are going to be weighed in the balances and you will be found wanting each and every one of us without exception. When we are weighed in and of ourselves, we will come up short because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Period. Done. And there is no strategy, there is no strength, there is no means within the kingdom of man by which we can tilt those scales. It is going to fall against you no matter what. There is only one person that can tilt those scales and that's the person of Jesus Christ. Because he is the only person who when weighed in the balance has been weighed perfect. He is the only one who has fulfilled the perfect and holy and just demands of God without fail, without blemish. And when he died on the cross, he took our sins upon himself and he gave us his righteousness when we receive it by faith so that when we stand before the throne room of God on that day when each of us are judged, Christ is our only claim. Your claim on that day will not be, well, I went to such and such church. Your claim will not be on that day. Look how dedicated, look how devoted I was to the church. I never missed. I went to everything. I was involved in X, Y, and Z. I served. I preached. None of that is going to matter on that day. On that day, your claim will not be, look how kind I was to people. Your claim will not be, look how hard I worked. Your claim will not be, look at the spouse that I tried to be. Look at the parent that I tried to be. None of that is going to measure up. You will be weighed and found wanting. On that day, the only plea you will have is Christ and Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. Your plea will be him and him alone. Mene, mene, tekel, parson stands before each and every one of us. What have you done with the mercy of God? Don't presume upon it for too long but embrace it and bow the knee before a just and holy God, the ruler of the kingdom of man. Because not only in his providence, I'm going to wrap this up quickly here, not only in his providence do we see that God executes his judgments, but the final thing that we see is that God establishes his purposes. This, this chapter concludes with a rather what seems like maybe an obscure fact, right? That, that night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And those are the kind of details that most of the time we just start to gloss over. I'm like, okay, yeah, this thing's said and done. Now we're on to something else. Cool. This is God establishing his plans and his purposes. This is what we believe was uh, prophesied in the dream to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. Oh, great Nebuchadnezzar and your great kingdom. Well, subsequent kingdoms are going to come after you. This is what is going to influence what we understand of the significance that Daniel is going to speak to in the weeks ahead as we continue to study the book. That God is raising up kingdoms and he's bringing them to ruin. This was all part of God's plan. This is God establishing his purpose. It's not coincidence that the Medes come in that night and take over Babylon. God's given it to them. God establishes his plans and his purposes and we tend to look at chapters like chapter 5 as standalone isolated chapters but we must recognize that there are layers to these stories 
One layer being we can look at chapter 5. It's got its own plot. It's got its own protagonist, its own antagonist. It's got its own conclusion, its resolution, all that. It's a great story in and of itself. But you peel back that layer and you begin to see that, well, this story fits into the broader narrative of Daniel. The, the reference to the vessels from Jerusalem and to Nebuchadnezzar and all these, to the Medes and the Persians. They're all, it's part of a broader story that God is bringing about, that God is doing. And you peel back that layer and you begin to see, well, this is falling into place within a, a, an even broader story of God's work. As he's brought his people into judgment and exile in Babylon and, and he's, he's bringing retribution and judgment against them for their sins and their rebellion against him. But he's, he's promising that he's going to bring them back. He's going to restore them. You peel back that layer and you begin to see that the book of Revelation, as I mentioned just a bit ago, looks at the fall of Babylon as a type for what's yet to come, that God still has great and grand purposes, that he is still working these things out. So for you and I today, we stand here, and I don't want to stand here and say, look at the moral principles of Daniel chapter 5. There are valuable lessons we can learn. But I'm going to stand here right here and right now, and I'm going to tell you that just like Daniel told Belshazzar, history is a good teacher. History is a good teacher because it can teach you to not make the mistakes of those who've gone before you, but more importantly, it'll teach you that God is a God who in his providence, he exposes the folly of man over and over and over again. He is a God who executes his judgments. He is a God who establishes his purposes. And if we can look back in history and see that God did that then, we have such great confidence that he's still doing it now and he's going to continue to do it in the days ahead. So you want an application? You want to take home for today? Trust in the providence of God and walk faithfully before him. Let the outcomes be God's problem. Stick to your pay grade. Live as God has called you to live and trust him each and every day. Honor him with your life. Honor him with your breath and honor him with your words. And serve him as your king, not the kingdom of man. And let God take care of the rest. Because he will. He's doing it. And he will continue.